0: O Father, we celebrate this day that in Christ, Emmanuel, God with us has come. God become man, dwelt with us, took on flesh, stooped low to this earth, shared the sod that our feet now tread, took upon himself our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Lord, this day we celebrate and proclaim these realities too great for our mere minds to contain all the beauty and all of the glories that are contained in them. Yet, Lord, we are awestruck and amazed by what you have accomplished in your perfect plan. And we who are in Christ this day, due to the sovereign grace of your Spirit, awakening us to new life, resurrecting us from the death of sin, Lord, our hearts are stirred as we look upon the face of Christ and the reality of the gospel. And as we open the scriptures and remind ourselves again of the miracles that were performed moving heaven and earth to purchase our souls from the grave. Open up our souls even wider, we pray, as we open up your scriptures this day. May the glories of the covenant relationship forge between God and man. And the blood of Christ our Lord be etched upon our souls deeper, more precisely, with more glory as we behold your holy word. Thank you for this time. As we gather at your table later as well, may we be moved, Lord Jesus, to worship, praise, and confession of the glories, Lord Jesus that are contained in what we celebrate this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a glorious opportunity we have today to feast our souls upon the reality of the gospel. Today is our Communion Sunday, and so we return to our Hebrews series. Turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to Hebrews chapter 12, and let us consider today verses 18 through 24. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. These have got to be some of my favorite verses. It's hard to categorize scripture by favorite and not so favorite, But there is such power contained in these these words that it seems that a number of messages could be preached from this, this text alone. However, I'll spare you multiple messages this morning and try to restrict it to one. Under this title, Sinai versus Zion, two mountains are in view, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. The aim of this morning's message is that we may deepen that our appreciation and anticipation might deepen of present and future gospel glories. May our consideration of the word of God today deepen our anticipation and appreciation of present and future gospel glories for we the redeemed. Would you stand with me this morning with your Bible open out of reverence for the holy word of God and let us consider these scriptures together. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 18. Here we have the holy word of Christ. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire, and darkness and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As the author of this great book of Hebrews brings his preeminent, sophisticated, and glorious, gloriously persuasive argument to a conclusion, the crescendo of full-orbed, redemptive, historical revelation reaches overwhelming levels of beauty. He revisits, our author does, he revisits and supercharges, you might say, the comparison and contrast motif or theme of old versus new covenant distinctives as he compares the law's arrival, the arrival of the law at Sinai, with the arrival of the justified to Mount Zion. There is something greater, far greater that was pictured in the past fulfilled in Christ. We look forward to now the saints who have gone before have experienced in Zion. We'll cover more of what the biblical concept of Zion is means to imply, intends to convey. But for now, consider this. There's two mountains in view. On one, the law arrived to the people of God at Sinai. On the other, Mount Zion, the justified, arrived to worship His holy name. The reader at this point of this great epistle should recall the greater priesthood of of Christ expounded, in contrast, to the Aaronic, Aaron, and Levitical orders of chapter 7, verses 11 and 16. So just to bring us up to speed and as a brief overview and to document that this is a pattern in the scriptures, in Hebrews particularly, let's consider just several of the verses, passages leading up to this. Hebrews seven eleven. He has previously stated, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Do You see what he's done? He's comparing the typological, that which was a sign, a symbol, and a shadow of before, the priesthood according to Aaron. And then he's showing the glories of how that was surpassed and fulfilled in the Melchizedekian, if you will, the new priesthood of Jesus Christ. The kind of priesthood that only one man in all of history was qualified to fill, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This difference, this contrast, should awaken in our souls all the more praise, all the more worship, all the more wonder as we consider old versus new. Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion. The priesthood according to Aaron versus the priesthood according to Melchizedek. He goes on, verse 12, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Speaking here of the exclusivity of Christ, only one could fulfill these shoes. Verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. Who is this descendant of Judah? who is claiming to be the Messiah, and how is he also a priest? Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Signed and sealed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the superiority of his priesthood. Aaron died. Jesus rose again." We continue the differences between the tabernacle and the true tent. The author of Hebrews goes on to explain in the next chapter, chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, he says in verse 1, "...we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand, the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man." He goes on to say in verse 5 that the former tent, as it were, the tabernacle, served as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by the Lord, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better Promises. Mount Sinai gives way to Mount Zion. The priesthood of Aaron gives way to the priesthood of Melchizedek. The old covenant gives way to the new. The tabernacle order gives way to the order of Jesus Christ who, are, who is our high priest has gone before and makes intercession for us into the place of perfect reconciliation, fellowship and communion with the Father. Christ's blood versus animal sacrifices in chapter 9. Our author continues to make this comparison, contrast case. But when Christ appeared as high priest, he says in verse 11 of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. The blood of goats and calves gives way to the blood of Jesus Christ. The superiority of the once-for-all offering of the Son of God, in contrast to the provisional, insufficient, temporal order of worship which provided only type and shadow, is expounded, it's proclaimed, it's illustrated throughout the entire book of Hebrews. Similar analogies occur in the writings of Paul. You could refer to Galatians four twenty five for another cross reference. The author of Hebrews further makes his point in our text today, adding to these examples of comparison and contrast, former type to greater glory. He now adds a list of seven things in the in the, uh, the in our chapter today in Hebrews chapter twelve. In Hebrews twelve. Seven times over, he catalogs the differences between the pre- and post-Christ eras of history. And so with symmetry and parallel lists of differences, we see them delineated in our text by the conjunction and, and he continues to make his point, building his case. As if he had not given us enough evidence already, we are now overwhelmed at the sum of what he has appealed to in the Old Covenant and the New. Look at the structure of our text today, Hebrews 12:18. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire. So we can consider that our first in the list of seven things. And then notice the word and is inserted. And darkness, and gloom, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg, no further messages be spoken to them. So those are seven descriptive phrases and words that refer to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is not stated directly in the text, but you'll see later when we get to Exodus 19 that no doubt this is what is in view, Mount Sinai. But then these seven pairings, the blazing fire, the darkness, the gloom, tempest, sound of trumpet, and voice, now those seven ideas are now paralleled with seven things that attend the new covenant. Says verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. Listen to this description. The city of the living God, and hev- or the heavenly Jerusalem, and then we see the word and, innumerable angels in festal gathering, and the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How far surpassed is the old covenant order with terrifying signs of judgment, blazing fire, darkness and gloom. How far is it surpassed in this feast, this gathering, this celebration populated by angels too many to count. Made possible by the mediating work of Jesus Christ and his sprinkled blood which washes away our sin. Let's consider three aspects of Mount Zion magnified by contrast with Mount Sinai. So I'll organize these seven things, hopefully this morning, under three major headings. Number one, consider population. Who is there? Who is in Zion, the New Jerusalem? And versus Sinai, who is on Mount Sinai? Secondly, let's consider perfection. What sets these two uh, event or the, these two um, scenarios apart Mount Sinai, the perfections of Mount Sinai versus the perfection that's in view. You could say the holiness or the sacredness of Mount Zion. And then, thirdly, priesthood. How is this possible? How is it possible that we, sinners, saved by grace, can populate now the future Mount Zion? The answers to these questions come in our text today. First of all, let us consider population. Who is there? Who populates Mount Zion? The answers are given in verses 22 and 23. But first of all, let's consider a little more closely the difference between these two mountains. Let's consider one as a city and the other one as an event. Mount Zion is listed as a city, the city of the living God in verse 22. But Mount uh, Sinai is stated more in the context of an event, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, the sound of trumpet, the voice of words. To get an idea of what this was like, Mount Sinai that is, turn with me to Exodus 19. Exodus 19 records the very moments to which our author in Hebrews refers when the Lord appeared to Moses and to the people at this time. A fearful, terrifying, horrifying indeed event, especially from the perspective of people who did not realize its significance, but were caught up in the experience of the moment. Consider verses 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. See the response. Then Moses brought, verse 17, the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. A tale of two mountains. Thus we have in the Scriptures, in this account, Exodus 19, 16-20, the event of Mount Sinai. This was the giving of the law. The Lord showed himself powerful to judge and to execute the sanctions or punishments that would attend the disobedience of the law that he delivered tenfold, the Ten Commandments in those two tablets to his servant Moses at this time. You know, people ask about the weight of the law or the consequences of the law. We speak of law enforcement. And there's a certain fear and respect that attends any law uh, that can be enforced. When the power of the state, when the power of the police, when the guns and the uh, courts of a society who has a certain authority and ability to follow up on its dictates is there, it's a present, abiding, and inescapable reality for the people. You break that law at your own peril, why? Because the authority that says do this and don't do that has the power to do something about it if you break that law. Imagine the power that God has to enforce His law. How would God demonstrate such power? Exodus 19 answers that question. He shows that he has the power to execute righteousness and to judge according to his holy precepts by shaking this mountain to its core, by enveloping it with clouds of smoke, by raising his voice miraculously from glory as the sound of trumpets getting louder and louder and louder. Have you ever heard a air raid siren? maybe on a recording or a tornado siren, the design of the noise and the direction of the blast is meant to awake and and to alert the people of an area that there's danger on the horizon. And the sound that siren noise in the mind and the soul and the psyche of the residents of this uh, place that's under peril, say an air raid, a bombing, it raises their attention. It grasps them and... Uh, with a certain grip of fear as they hear the whistling of the bombs in the distance and that noise of the siren is beating in their head. Imagine that. But times as multiple times anything you've ever heard and not knowing where the sound came from except from heaven and except by a miracle of God revealing His power to execute the judgments deserving those who break His law. And this, on top of this, the lightnings, the place is dark and gloomy, and the whole environment is a suffocating blackness interrupted only by strikes of lightning, too blinding to look at. And the voice shouts from heaven, calling up, not everyone, just one man, Moses, and at another occasion, Aaron. Two people, themselves trembling with fear, dared to approach God's presence, When he reveals himself in this event with absolute power to judge. The law is given. And it's given with an exclamation point, with an underscore of absolute power to enforce it. And this was witnessed directly by who? Well, directly, that is, the presence of the Lord was experienced only by two, as I mentioned. Moses and Aaron. Who was there? Well, the population of Israel was there in a way, but they experienced from a distance the terrifying fear of the reality of God's power to judge. And as we see further in the life of God's people, there was a very exclusive role that the high priest would take, and only he could ultimately go into the presence of the Lord. This was pictured by Moses himself going into God's presence as it were to receive the law and later by Aaron as the high priest going only by himself under certain cleansing rituals to consecrate him into the holy place to make intercession for the people. So at this mountain, the population was very small. Only Moses in Exodus 19 and Aaron were allowed, permitted, to go into the presence of God. And this is the idea that's conveyed to us by contrast of Mount Sinai in our text. You have not come to what may be touched, our author says again, verse 18, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But indeed we see we have come to a different mountain in Christ, Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. We have come not to an event, as it were, that demonstrates God's fearful power to judge only, but we have come through the cross of Jesus Christ, through His power to consecrate us, to change our hearts, to regenerate us, to render us born again by the sovereign power of His Spirit. We have come to a city. A place that is populated by all who share our experience in redemption. We have come to a joyful habitation. A place that is populated by innumerable angels and by myriads of the saints who have gone before. Who worship and praise together and enjoy all of the beauties, the blessings, the provision, the peace, the prosperity of the most amazing city you could possibly imagine, with a perfectly just ruler, with perfectly redeemed people, with perfect provision from the future tree of life available for the partaking of all its inhabitants, with perfect relationships and communion with God the Father and with each other, with all conflict and strife and sin and sorrow, sickness, death and dying Having fled away until all that remains is the beauty of heaven eternal. And this is what we have in the city of our God. This is what we have promised to us in the gospel in Mount Zion, the joyful habitation of multitudes. Who is there more specifically? We move from city versus event to this uh, idea of angelic feast. Notice in verse 22 we've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and this phrase, and two, innumerable angels in festal gathering. You know, the angels appear, they gather for a task in Genesis 3 tragically to preserve God's glory, to judge according to the failure to keep his covenant angels appear to guard the gate to the realm of communion and fellowship with the Lord after Adam and Eve fell. In Genesis three twenty four, we have these devastating words. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, angels are celestial created beings. They are messengers and servants of the Lord to do accomplish His will. And in the fall, their directive was, stand at the gate of the place of communion and fellowship and do not let those sinners eat from that tree of life. Here is a flaming sword to guard the gate to the fellowship and presence and the realm of the sacred and the holy. No one passes the flaming sword alive. They are turned away and sent to hell. See, this is the role of angels after the fall. But thank God, a way was made to open that gate so that the cherubim would set their swords to their side and we might enter in. And instead of facing cherubim with flaming swords, guarding the way of communion with the Lord of glory, they now one day will join us in a feast to praise the holy name of the one who made safe passage for us back in feasting and joyful gathering with him in perfect relationship forever. You see, what we have to look forward to is unimaginably glorious. It's beautiful and grandiose beyond our wildest imaginations. And this is the language. And this is what is intended with the language that the author of Hebrews employs. Innumerable angels in festal gathering. One of the names of God himself is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. These hosts were summoned at his birth, were they not? We celebrate this historically, culturally, this time of year when Christ was born, the incarnation took root and foothold on this earth when Christ, the infant son of the Virgin Mary, entered into this realm and he was accompanied by the messengers of glory and showed himself to be, even as a baby still, Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, as the angels that populate the realms of glory sang peace on earth and goodwill to men. Little did those believing shepherds in the fields know That one day they would sit down at table with those same hosts of heaven if they believed that Messiah baby was the key to the salvation of their own souls, but they would one day. And this is what the author of Hebrews celebrates, the angelic feast in glory. Let us get a sneak peek in Revelation 5 of what this day will look like. What kinds of songs might they sing? What kind of environment might we expect? john the revelator sees a crack in the revelatory curtain he peers through the windows of glory and he writes for us in verse 11 then i looked and i heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth of the festal gathering of Zion. Finally, who is there? We find that the firstborn are the enrolled. Verse 23, we come to Mount Zion. We have learned that it is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. It's populated by innumerable angels and festal gathering. And verse 23 gives us a promise. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ today, if you are a believer, if you trust Jesus' blood to wash away your sin, you are counted in this number, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Turn with me to Numbers 3. There were firstborn that were enrolled in the picture that preceded this fulfillment again in the Old Covenant. The book of Numbers records all of the facts and figures that attended the way of the Israelites census, uh, censuses were taken and uh, people were arranged, uh, tribes were uh, given particular distinctive tasks, all these types of things in the book of Numbers. And among these uh, events that were taking place, we find the following in Numbers chapter 3, verse 40. The Lord said to Moses, list all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me, I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel, as the Lord commanded him, and all the firstborn males, according to the number of names, from a month old and upward, as listed were 22,273. So we see in this picture, in the book of Numbers, that roles were kept, that the firstborn of the males were counted and their number was 22,273. And this was a picture of who were the legitimate citizens in this nation. And then the record was certified in the rolls that said, yes, you are a citizen in good standing. And if they were to commit a crime, a sin that would put them at odds with the people, their name would be blotted out of this book, of these roles. Well, this picture in the Old Covenant in Numbers 3 gives way to its prophetic fulfillment in the New Covenant when we find this language. We come in Zion to the assembly of the firstborn who are, are enrolled in heaven. In the New Jerusalem, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the city of the living God, who are the firstborn that are enrolled? Well, the firstborn are, of course, those who receive the inheritance. They are the beneficiaries of the great riches that the Father bestows that the progenitor as progenitor or what have you gives to the next generation. This is the language that we see in the gospel. We are inheritors of the fortune of Jesus Christ that is passed on to us through his death. The picture also given in the gospel is that upon the death of the testator, the one who has the great fortune, Jesus Christ himself and that fortune being salvation, upon his death, that title, deed, to all those riches of salvation is transferred to his heirs. And who are his heirs again? The redeemed, the born again, Christians, all who are in him. You and I, if you confess faith in Christ alone as Lord today, what does that make us? As inheritors of the fortune of Jesus Christ? That makes us firstborn, if you will, enrolled in heaven. Those who have received not of any works of our own the great treasures, the merit of Jesus Christ upon his death, transferred to our account. This is the gospel. We see conversely why the picture of Esau and what he represented is so tragic as we've covered recently. Verse 16, see to it, We're given these instructions that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. You see, Esau was the firstborn. Yet in not understanding, realizing, or valuing the plan and word of God, he forfeited his rights to the fruit or or to the riches of his inheritance for a single meal. And the perspective is this. Remember, saints, members of the household of God, that you are the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Don't you dare even think about trading the riches of the inheritance of Christ for anything temporal, fleeting, that that perishes with the using and that is carnal, trivial, and null and void as far as eternity is concerned. Praise the Lord. Secondly, let us speak of the perfections that Mount Zion represents, three aspects of Mount Zion, magnified by contrast with Sinai. We've covered population who is there. Now let's go to perfection. What sets it apart? Back in Exodus 19, if you would turn back there with me again, let us read the following few verses after the ones we've read so far, and they really speak of an untouchable perfection. You see, the law was perfect in that it dictated to us perfectly the righteousness of Christ the problem was is that no one short of Christ himself after Adam had the ability to keep it and so this moment this event on Sinai Mount Sinai represented perfection yes but an untouchable perfection an unreachable perfection a standard of righteousness that God requires that we are terrified in sight of it because we know we fall so far short. And unless there's a mediator who can stand in on our behalf, we will be destroyed by His power to enforce the laws we know we break every day. In Exodus 19, 21-25, we see a picture of this untouchable perfection of God's law. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord So Moses went down to the people and told them. There was a line, and if the people crossed that line, everyone else would pick up stones and, on the commandment of the Lord, kill them. Why the stones? They could throw a spear as well. Why the spear? Because they themselves could not cross that line. There was an untouchable perfection, there was a line that God's holiness required. Man does not cross. He crosses it at the pain of death. At the beginning of our text today, there's an interesting phrase. The author of Hebrews says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom. And that's an interesting way to put Mount Sinai, that which may be touched. Isn't it true that the order was don't touch it? Yes, in fact, in the same passage, verse 20, it says, even a beast... If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Man and beast, upon threat of death, are not to touch the mountain. So, can you touch it or can't you touch it? What's in view here? And I think the implied context of this. In addition to noting the temporal and passing nature, so that which can be touched is temporary, it's passing, it's provisional, it's of this earth, it's not eternal, as it were. And so there's that, no doubt, associated with this idea of what can be touched. But in addition to that, I think one might interpret this passage in the the following way. You have not come to what may be touched upon the pain of death. You see, if you went to Sinai, you touched Sinai upon the pain of death. But the promise of Mount Sinai is you have not come to the place that you touch upon the pain of death. In other words, you you can cross the line of perfection, on Mount Sinai, where the line of perfection was unbridgeable, I'm sorry, at Zion, where the line of perfection was unbridgeable at Sinai. What's the difference? What made all the difference? Well, the answer is our next point in the message, and we'll get to it soon enough. How is this possible? It's the priesthood of Jesus Christ alone. Yet we see how great His work is, do we not? When we consider once again the untouchable perfection of the holiness of God, that no man in and of himself could ever achieve it. And just crossing that line, daring with Hebrew pride to cross over as if to say, I'm worthy of approaching the presence of God, would earn him an immediate stoning or death by javelin. Note the perfection of Zion as we continue in the text under a second category the judge's presence. So what I've just said to you—the reality of this—and the amazing new scenario in Zion versus Sinai is magnified as we continue. We have not come, or uh, we have not come to what may be touched, but instead, as we continue, verse twenty-two, Mount Zion, city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, where innumerable angels gather in festal uh, celebration to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And then this next surprising phrase, and to God the judge of all. See what is in view here is that in Mount Zion we can be in the presence of the perfect judge without fear of judgment. In Mount Zion we come to God the judge of all in worship in thankfulness, in praise, in celebration, in feasting, not in trembling, not in fear, not in horrifying, uh, frightful response where we cower away from this demonstration of God, the judge of all, His power to shake heaven and earth with cloud and fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, but instead, the scenario has changed in Mount Zion. It's so far surpassed the beauty of this Uh, The beauty of this reality is such that we can approach God, the judge of all, without fear of judgment. In the judge's presence, holiness is required. And reconciliation must be made before there can be fellowship and communion with the perfect judge of all. And how does this happen? Again, our final point answers in Christ. But we, nevertheless, in Mount Zion... As we approach this mountain, come before the judge's presence without fear of judgment. And so we have a picture of this even today at the Lord's table. You have not come to what may be touched upon the fear of death, but this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, you come to the Lord's table. Imagine it this way or think of it this way. Before you this day sits a table of communion, of fellowship, of feasting, of celebration where in Christ you are welcome in the presence of the judge of all. You are welcome in the presence of a holy God, but it's because of what these elements represent that the table is open to you today. It's because of what these elements represent that you can stand before the judge's presence without fear of judgment. We see further the perfection extending to us says we have come to God the judge of all and further in verse 23 and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who are these? The righteous and perfect. These are the resurrected spirits. These are the spirits as it were that have in their intermediate state gone on to glory and await the resurrected bodies and await us to join them one day. And notice the adjectives that modify their condition. They are righteous and perfect who are these these are those that were listed in Hebrews 11 as examples they are Abel they are Noah they are Abraham they are Isaac they are Jacob they are Moses they are Rahab they are Gideon Barak Samson Jephthah David Samuel the prophets those who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice obtained promises. Those who among them some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might, not, might be raised again to a better life. There are those who were mocked, flogged, chained in prison, stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, were destitute, wandered around in skins of sheep, goats, afflicted, mistreated. Who are these? These are those of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts, mountains, dens, and caves of the earth, and though this meager existence and all this affliction and suffering attends the way of so many, why could they do it in faith? Because they walk not by sight, but they look forward to Mount Zion. They shared the faith of Abraham and his vision. When he left a place that was comfortable and that he knew and gave him a great measure of prosperity, relatively speaking on earthly terms, But he went to live in tents, why? With Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise, he could do this, wandering around in sheepskins and the like, living in tents, having no city or established home. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham looked forward to Mount Zion. He knew that there He would be joined by all the righteous and the perfected spirits, the saints who would go before, who had gone before Him, and who would join Him in due course. And we will join them as well. This is the glorified intermediate state of all the saints, including or included uh, all the saints who have gone before, all who are the rewards of the Lamb's suffering, who will join them in process as redemptive history continues to unfold. All those who await glorified bodies and will receive them at the second resurrection, they are those in heaven who are perfected and righteous by Christ's atoning power. Praise the Lord. Finally this morning, one more aspect of Mount Zion, magnified by contrast with Mount Sinai, priesthood. How is all of this possible? Verse 24 of Hebrews 12 tells us clearly. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is why. First of all, consider Moses' insufficiency. Again, aspects of Mount Sinai magnified in contrast with Sinai. The mediator at the time of Mount Sinai was Moses, but even in our text today, it says that the circumstances were so terrifying. Indeed, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now the people, they said, Moses, you go, you represent us. They put their faith in him as it were. But there must have been just a little bit of uncertainty at least when they saw their mediator, their designated representative himself shaking with fear, knees knocking and tentative as he steps forward, quaking with doubt and reservations and who knows, the unexpected as he approaches this dark and gloom and tempest and fire and lightning and power of the Almighty God. Moses was not the ultimate mediator. He was insufficient for the task. He was not even able to enter the promised land. Aaron was insufficient as a high priest. The book of Hebrews tells us this. It tells us all the way back, in Hebrews chapter 3, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house indeed if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. A servant wasn't good enough. We needed the Son of God. As such, verse 3, Jesus has been counted more worthy, or worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. We needed the builder to represent us, the builder of the new covenant, the builder of his church, the builder of Mount Zion, if, we, if you will. We needed Jesus Christ, the true mediator. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us of him, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, the Sinai priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 24, But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. The people could not draw ultimately near to God through Moses. The people could not cross the threshold of the holy place through Aaron. But you and I will join Christ in the holy place through the perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. The once for all, true and ultimate, great fulfilled high priest. Finally, Jesus' blood. How is this possible? It's possible because we come not just to New Jerusalem, not just to innumerable angels, joined with the firstborn enrolled in heaven, God the judge of all, not just to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, but we also come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you remember again? The scope of the entire Bible is in view as our author writes. We've already referred to the flaming sword Carried by the cherubim at the gate of glory, uh, as far as it was represented in Eden. But in Genesis 4, there's another ominous reality at the wake of the first murder fratricide where Cain killed his brother Abel. Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Genesis 4 8. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground brothers and sisters if there were no new covenant this would be the only voice heard through history it is the sound of a blazing fire darkness gloom and tempest and a voice whose trumpeting uh, magnitude would make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them do you think we can bear the sound of Abel's blood trying out for justice do you think you can bear the sound of you, the judgment do your own sin trying out for retribution we come to the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for judgment. Christ's blood cries justified. Abel's blood cried out, judgment must be served. Jesus' blood cries out, judgment is served on the cross on Calvary. This is why we can enter Zion. This is what we remember and proclaim today at the lord's table this is why the ominous doom that surrounded the environment of sinai gives way to the glorious feasting in heaven one day this is why because jesus our sufficient mediator shed his own blood to represent us and to redeem our souls let us transition in prayer oh father words fall short to describe how dependent we are on your way of salvation. And as our hearts are stirred to rejoice, words fall short of describing the glory that you deserve, the gratitude, the thankfulness, the worship that is due your name for satisfying for us the terms and conditions of fellowship with you and the death and the law-keeping and the work from God calvary to ascension of our lord and savior jesus christ but we feast upon these realities today in the hearing of your word and we partake of these realities at your table today may you use both to move our souls to appreciate and anticipate the present and future glories of the gospel and may you use this time as well to draw any who are lost in this place and in the hearing of these words unto salvation in Christ alone so that they might join us one day, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for the promises of the new covenant established and certain in Christ our Lord. In His holy name, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.